Let's pray together. Lord, we're, we give thanks for Bob's testimony. We give thanks for uh, you being manifestly present in his work and in his family. This is your promise. If you, we draw near to you, you draw near to us. And that's not, it's not your everyday presence. It's your wonderful, powerful, manifest presence. In that presence is the fullness of joy. That's what we come today, Lord. We're, I, whether the people who've come here today know it or not, I'm throwing them into joy. I'm pulling them into joy. I can't do that without your Holy Spirit. So will you come, Holy Spirit, and arrest our hearts from depression, arrest our hearts from anger, arrest our hearts from anxiety, from numbness, from deadness, from coldness, and will you bring us into life? abundant life, just like Jesus promised. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you read with me Psalm 1? Let's read it out loud. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, or stand in the way of sinners, or sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord And on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season, and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked. They are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous, For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Now, I believe after studying philosophy and theology and living life, I believe that you have two opposite forces that are trying to crush your ability to have happiness. And the one is... The philosophy that is guiding our society and our culture in the West, it arose in around, uh, around the year 1680, was very, very powerful all the way to about 1750 or so, but continues to influence us tremendously. And it was called the Age of Enlightenment or the Age of Reason. And it was a uh, ascendancy of, the, uh, of, of that human beings are primary and that humanism is uh, the main thing to be, you know, to be involved with. And so the, the idea there is simply this, that you could analyze, you could research, you could study, you could figure out how to make everything bad go away and make only good things happen for yourself. So in a sense, it boils down to kind of a pop culture saying that says, if it's to be, it's up to me. Now, I mean, you know, I don't want to be overly simplistic. It's a very complicated movement and stuff. But but I do want to say there were and are some tremendous benefits to research, analysis, scientific methods, all of these things. I love cable. 
I mean, I grew up, when I grew up, there was black and white televisions and only three channels. And I was the antenna for my father. <laughs> if he was watching a game, I had to move the thing and hold it and, and all of that, you know? So now I have 675,000 channels, <laughs> and I still don't have anything to watch. Still can't find a program. <laughs> what I'm saying is this is the best that you can do from a, a non-spiritual idea is find comfort. Get convenience. But the problem is, the more comfortable we get, the more depressed we get. The more convenience there is, the angrier we are when we're inconvenienced. And... Because you never have enough, the anxiety levels just keep increasing. There is some sense in which no matter how much there is, you never have all of it. Like, I'm really, I'm really struggling that I don't have an Apple Watch. I mean, I have the iPhone 6 Plus. Why don't I have an Apple Watch? You know? And have you ever noticed that the day you buy something is the worst day to have ever bought it in the world? That the minute you buy it, now it's obsolete, and you're like, why didn't I get this one? It's because the issue is not convenience, it's not comfort, it's not material, it's spiritual. Okay, so there's this incredible humanistic force over on this side. On the other side, on the opposite end, is, is what I would call a fatalism that's sweeping our globe. It is primarily, it is primarily manifesting in the rise of Islam. The Islamic idea is fatalistic. It is not, if it's to be, it's up to me. It is only up to Allah. Listen, listen to what I mean by that. I've traveled all in Africa. I've traveled in the Middle East. And what you see is people believing they have no choice. That they have no choice in the matter. That everything is destined. That everything is out of their control. I was riding on these roads in Mali with missionaries from the Christian Missionary Alliance. The roads themselves are just terrifying. By themselves. I mean, it's just, I'm sitting there going, I might die today, you know. It's just incredible, the roads that you ride on, because people are like, well, if Allah wills, the roads will get fixed. And if he doesn't, they won't. But it goes another. I started watching these huge tractor-trailer trucks, some of them 18-wheelers, some of them double piggyback, whatever you call those things. You know, and they're riding on the same terrible roads. Only they don't have 18 tires. Sometimes they had 12 Sometimes they had 10. And some of them, the brakes don't even work. And I said to the missionary, I said, how do they get away with that? They said, well, basically the truck driver goes, if it's my day to die, it doesn't matter how many tires I have. I said, but it's not my day to die. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and so the, I, you understand what I'm saying? It is a fatalistic view that I have no role in my life. 
It's a fatalistic view that all I can do is resign to whatever happens, whatever is fated. And that is, that is sweeping in and is, is crushing people all over the world. And the problem is that many Christians have some of these same views, very hybrid in many ways, very inconsistent. But there are many times where you see something you want, you could care less what God wants for you. And you say, I'm going to have that. I can't tell you the number of people that I have counseled with that ran from one bad marriage to another, married somebody because they were pretty or handsome or rich or whatever it might be, and married them for all kinds of carnal, fleshly reasons, and then wake up and said, God, why did you give me this bad marriage? And then come to me and angry with God because of the person. I said, I'm not sure you let God be involved in that choice at all. I think that was totally your choice, and now you're mad about it, you're upset about it, because you haven't dealt with this. You've acted like it was all up to you. Now you're acting like you're a fatalist. You see, this, what the psalmist does in Psalm 1 is he, he knows about those who only think of what man thinks. And he knows about those who only believe in this kind of fatalistic God. And he charts a course right between the two. And in this course between the two, he makes it clear that your happiness is spiritually based. But it also depends on your choices. That without... The appropriate choices, you will not be happy. But at the same time, if that power that comes from eternity is not flowing in you like a river, you will never be happy even if you make good choices. It's spiritually based. Here's my, here's my purpose or my drive this summer. I believe that God is committed to your happiness. I believe it. I, I believe with all my heart that God is most glorified when you are the happiest. Because I know as a parent, I am most satisfied, I am most fulfilled when my children are truly happy. And if I, being evil, know how to give good gifts to my children, how much more my, whole, my heavenly Father knows how to give His Holy Spirit His very joy to you. God is committed to your happiness. But if you have come to God simply so that he will make you happy, then you've come to a butler and not to God. He will not be your gopher. He will be your father. He will be your king. He will be your friend. He will be your counselor. He'll be your healer. He'll be your provider, but he will not be your butler. Because being God, he can't be somebody else. He can only be who he is. And who he is is enough when you know him to make yourself very, very happy. So my goal for you is that you would have a relentless joy in the face of all of your circumstances. You would have a, a relentless, unshakable joy 
And my other goal is this, is that everybody who knows you would know that you are fundamentally a happy person. You would, they would know. They would know. Do you understand something? That if you really are a person who loves the gospel and who loves Jesus Christ, that has to penetrate and permeate every area of your life. You cannot have an unhappy marriage and say, I'm happy in Jesus. It doesn't make any sense. It has to come through your marriage. If you're a single person, you can't be a depressed single person and say, I'm happy in Jesus. You cannot be a horrible, awful parent and say, I am a spiritually mature person. For one thing, your immaturity does not glorify you or God. But when you begin to let that joy, that relentless joy, that fundamental happiness pervade every area of your life, God is most glorified. I am convinced, friends, that God is most glorified when you are most satisfied. And I believe this. I've believed it since I was a kid. I've tried to understand it my whole life. But I believe the purpose that we have on this earth is to glorify God. That I exist for a bigger purpose than making myself happy. And that happiness is actually found indirectly, not directly. That as I glorify God, I find happiness. But another side of this is that I will only glorify God if I enjoy Him. If I find my joy in Him. So the psalmist says there's choices that we make. All right, I'd like, to, I'd like to just bring you back to this chapter where it says there are three verbs. There are three verbs that determine whether you're a happy person. And it basically is this. It's who you walk with, where you stand, and where you sit. That's what he says. Walk, stand, Sit. Say that with me just so I know you're breathing. Walk, sit, and sit. Now, think about what these three mean. Okay, walking, literally here, uh, you could take the literal thing. He's saying walking in the way of the wicked. He's basically saying about the manifestation of your heart that the world sees through your behavior. That by the way you walk, by the way you behave, you are demonstrating what you believe is the source of your happiness. What you do, what you choose, what, you, what habits that you have every day will say what you believe is the source of your happiness. I mean, it's fascinating. It's your behavior neither makes you acceptable to God, nor does it, if you are a believer, your behavior does not become your identity, but your behavior manifests what you're believing about both of those things. See, we, we who love the Lord Jesus, who have accepted and received the gospel, we have come into an identity that we do not deserve. It's not an identity we have earned. 
any other place, in any other religion, in any other philosophy, you are basically identified by your behavior. If someone lies, we call them what? A liar. So that, you see, it goes from behavior to identity. If someone steals, what do we call them? Thief. You know, if someone kills, we don't just say you killed. We say you are a murderer. You see, it goes from behavior to identity. And any of you that have ever had bad behavior, it is hard to undo the identity. It stays with you as if it were a record. Only in Christianity is your identity defined by relationship. The Bible says it this way. Jesus came unto his own, and his own received him not, but as many as received him. No other condition whatsoever asked for except receiving Jesus as who he is and what he's done as being for you. By doing that, you now, the Bible says, have the right. In other words, now this belongs to you. The right to say, I'm not a liar. I'm not a thief. I'm not a bad husband. I'm not a deadbeat. I'm not lazy. You're now able to say, because a relationship that I have with Jesus, I can call myself a son of the Most High God. Why then would I want to walk after those who are murderers, thieves, lazy, every other thing, and and, and begin to get my identity from behaviors that are destructive? You see, I'm not earning my identity. I have my identity. So now my behavior will reflect what I believe about my identity. If I know that I'm a, a son, if you know that you're a daughter, then you will behave like a son. You will behave like a daughter. Even those of us who grew up in dysfunctional families, we still heard it when we were kids. We heard it say, we don't act like that. Come on, you, you heard that, didn't you? Or was that only my mom? <laughs> she didn't just say, don't do that. She would say, as a member of our family, we don't behave like that. She connected it to identity. She said, if you are my son, you will act like this. So I understand now that because I am a son of the Most High God, I don't chase after things that are not worthy of my sonship. Come on, that's pretty good. Every now and then, I amaze myself. See, I want you to get this, though. What is he saying? He's not saying, I'm going to give you a bunch of new rules. He's saying, I gave you an identity. I give you an identity. Don't demean your identity by running after things that are not worthy of you. Can you still do them? Of course. But every time you do, you'll discover again and again how empty they are, how contrary to your very nature they are. Last week I told you this. There's a river. Scripture talks about it all the time. God himself being the fountain of life. A river, one of the great promises of the Old Testament is he takes desert places and he turns them into streams 
of living water. He takes wilderness and, and builds a river there. You see, what he wants to do in your heart and your life is take the, the, the abandoned, deserted, rejected places and build a river there. This psalm says that when you came to Jesus, Jesus took you like a tree and planted you by the river of God. But the question is, which way will your roots grow? Will they, will they grow towards the river? Or will the roots grow back to your old life? And what the enemy wants to say is, he wants to say, the river's not going to satisfy you. You've got to go back to your old life. But see, when you know who you are, you know you don't belong there anymore. You know what there is there. And you know that it didn't satisfy. One of the, and I, I love to read philosophy and stuff, study philosophy, and I particularly love Greek philosophy. And one of, the, one of the Greek philosophies that rose for a time in Greece was called hedonism. Some of you might have heard of that. It's basically the idea that I live every day for pleasure. That pleasure will bring happiness. And I, I think it's one of the great temptations of everybody's life is to believe that what I'm doing this moment is the only moment that exists. And so if I can choose anything in this moment, I'm going to choose pleasure. But the interesting thing about hedonism is it was pleasure to the excess. In other words, if one glass of wine is good, two is better. You know, if one sex partner is good, five are better. And so the, the idea was whatever, whatever gives you pleasure, multiply it. But one of the interesting things is hedonism didn't last long. I mean, it's still around. I'm not saying it didn't, but it, it, it did not become the primary philosophy of Greece. Even among these basically... Uh, you know, again, non-Christian, uh, polytheistic people, they, they began to say hedonism just doesn't really work. Do you know why? Because the consequences of excessive pleasure are greater than the pleasure. There is such a thing as a hangover. Not that any of you have ever experienced that, but, I, I, you know, we've seen it on TV. And... Uh, <laughs> You know, and you see these people, you, you know, of course, none of you, but there are people, at least dramatizing this event, who hug their toilet bowls and promise never to do it again. <laughs> right? But they do do it again. Even knowing how much it's going to hurt. Why? Because they don't have eternity in their hearts. Because all they think they have is that moment. Not so with you. See, even if you give up a pleasure in the moment, you're not living just for that moment. A son of God, a daughter of God, does not say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. A son or a daughter says, Eternity is in my heart. I don't have life today only. I have eternal life. 
And Jesus said, even if I give something up today for his name's sake, something that he asked me not to do by choice, he says he will return it to me in this life and in the life to come, not only 30 times more, but 60 times more. And then he says, even 100 times more. You see, if you and I live as secular humanists, then we have no other choice but try to find pleasure in the moment because there are no other moments. But if we are living for eternity, we are storing up pleasures forever. Have you ever lost something that was precious to you? Something that you cared about and then you found it? Wasn't it even more precious once you found it because you had lost it? The Bible says that's what heaven's going to be like. Is that it is redemption time. Where everything you've lost, everything you've sacrificed, everything you've postponed by not walking in the way of the wicked, you will see and hold on to and have. For eternity. Heaven is not just a cloud where you're playing a harp out of tune (laughs) with wings on your back. Heaven corresponds to what's in your heart now. Those longings that are there, that that you get glimpses of what it is like to be fully yourself, fully satisfied, completely fulfilled. Why is it that I can stop walking in the way of the wicked because I have something better? See, God is not the cosmic killjoy saying, don't do this, don't do that. He's the cosmic joy source who's saying to you, come this way with me. Now, sometimes that road is a cross. Because Jesus said, For the joy set before me, I will endure the shame of the cross. Because even what you postpone or you sacrifice or you choose to make a decision, I'm not going to walk in this way, even in those things, sometimes it will be pain that you experience. Even if you decide, I'm not going to do this anymore, you may go through withdrawals. And Jesus says, I know what it is to go through all those things. There's not a single thing you've ever gone through or ever will go through that you'll ever go through alone. When you're making those choices to not do this, to not walk in that way, he's right there with you every step of the way. You're never alone. Never alone. But the rewards that are stored up for you are bigger than you realize. And yet, at the same time, it's fascinating how when you choose to not go a certain way and walk a certain way, when you decide this is who I am and this is the way I'm going to live my life, the rewards of living that life themselves are plentiful and amazing. Do you know that the people who went before us, who lived in very unsafe and uncertain times, for the beliefs that they had, often were, some of them, their heads were chopped off, some were burned at the stake. Do you know when they did, when they did that, they went joyfully to their deaths, singing hymns, 
glorifying God with their last breath? How can you do that if there's nothing more? You can only do that if you have decided that the way I am walking is flowing out of who I am. And whatever cost there is to be a man of God, a woman of God, a man of faith, a woman of faith, whatever cost is worth the price. This is why the psalmist says, not only is it important where you walk, but where you stand. See, it's not just behavior. There are people who can fake godly behavior. I mean, almost anybody can decide, I'm not going to do this, and I am going to do that. But no one can fake where they stand. Because where you stand actually is, it is the root commitments of your heart. It is what you truly trust. And in the moment of your trial is when you will find out if you stand or you fall. It is in that moment that the manifestation of what you really believe. See, I can confess with my mouth almost anything. But you push and you squeeze enough, and then you will find what's really in my heart. And that's what he means when he says stand. When you stand, it's saying this is what you truly value. Like, I had to learn, and maybe many of you have too, I had to learn that I was not a very loving person. And, and where God began to show me that I was not loving was in my marriage. Because, I, you know, with my, with my mouth I say, I'm going to love Lisa like Christ loved the church. And that sounds great, you know, until Lisa wants me to go to the grocery store with her. Because Lisa, to love Lisa, is to realize she never likes to do anything alone. I think grocery shopping is a one-man job. You hunt it, you kill it, you bring it home. (laughs) You know, give me the list. I'll go knock this out and be home. She wants to go and talk. Now, it's a simple thing, and you would think that kind of sacrifice would be easy because I say, I'm a Christian man in a Christian marriage, and I'm going to love my wife like Christ loved the church. Just don't make me go to the grocery store with her. But it's all those little things that begin to actually reveal what you value. See, it's not the big declarations. I can stand up here and declare all kinds of things. It's the private practices that reveal where I stand. And in those moments, I have to say no to standing in the judgment seat of sinners. And I have to stand in my marriage with the righteous judge. The last one of the three choices is is as important as the other two. Listen to me for a minute on this. Where you sit in the scriptures, the idea of sitting is an indication of where you belong, of what you belong to. In other words, where you sit tells what possesses you, who your owner is, who your master is. 
And so when you belong here, it says, to the sinners, when you belong to the skeptics, when you belong to the cynics, when you belong to the mockers, when you mock, when you criticize, when you are cynical and unbelieving and doubting, when you belong there, you'll never be happy, the psalmist says. Because nothing will ever be good enough for you. Whether it's simple, you'll call it simplistic. If it's emotional, you'll call it emotionalistic. If it's complicated, you'll say it's too complicated. Nothing will be good enough. And for anyone who lives in the world where nothing is good enough, they are never happy. It is all about who you belong to. You see, if everything in your life is about the externals, what kind of clothes do I wear? What kind of car do I drive? This is the statement of who I am by how wealthy and put together I seem while on the inside I'm falling apart. I don't know if any of the rest of you in this room is. I grew up with hand-me-down clothes in a rich community. I knew they were hand-me-downs. They were three years behind and they never fit. And it made me always feel inferior, self-esteem issues, all kinds of things because on the outward, I didn't look like the other people that I went to school with. So as soon as I got out of school, I said, I'm going to buy my own clothes. They're going to be cool. They're going to have polo ponies on them and, uh, you know, all kinds of things. But guess what? The guy in the clothes is still broken because the externals don't change anything. It's when you begin to believe, I don't need to belong to the country club. I don't need to belong to this group or that group. I belong to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I belong to Jesus. Now, it's important that you say that. Say that with me. I belong to Jesus. Okay, but I'm going to tell you what's more important for your happiness than even saying that. Jesus belongs to me. You know, there's an old song that says, not just for the end of time, but for eternity. This is, this is who I am for eternity. You know, clothes come and go. Cars come and go. Externals, even people come and go. Jesus will not come and go. And this is why the psalmist says that what you delight in is what will make you prosper. I love that promise. It says, the one who is no longer sitting, standing, or walking, but delighting in the word and the law and the person of God, says that person and everything they do, they prosper. I think it's worth jettisoning everything to get to this place to say, I want that kind of prosperity. I want that. I want that. So I'm going to ask you to stand with me. Okay, and I'm going to ask you to take your hand. I don't know what, how do you, however you express passion right now, even those of you who are a little more reserved, get a little, let's get a little aggressive right now, all right? All right, take your finger, your hand, whatever it is that has confronted you before in life, I want you to say with me, I'm not walking that way anymore. Come on, you got to get a little, little more passionate. Come on. I'm not walking that way anymore. There you go. And I'm not going to stand here anymore. Hmm. And I don't belong to this group anymore. See how clarifying that is? 
It's where I'm going to walk, how I'm going to stand, and to whom do I belong. I tried to make that grammatically correct right there. This is, he said, the psalmist is saying, this is where you either prosper or you don't. But then it has to be a little bit more, he's saying it has to come from the heart. Because you cannot force delight. Delight is a response. I mean, you, when delight comes, words come out of your mouth. Sounds come out of your mouth because you're delighted. People do not like to eat food with me because I make embarrassing sounds when I like them. Because when I find something I delight, it just, I can't control how much joy comes out of me. Okay? And so that's what the Lord is looking for. Not a compelled joy. Not a restrained, restricted joy. But a delight. Would you ask for that with me today? Maybe you're already there. Then it's time to guard your delight. But if you're not there, he wants to be your delight. He wants to be the ice cream in your life. (laughs) There it is. I heard it. All right. So let's pray together. Lord, come on. Lord, other things have delighted me, but they let me down. They went away. They rejected me. They hurt me or they disappointed me. You will never disappoint me. I put my hope in you. You are my delight. In Jesus' name. Amen. If this thing is making sense to you today, one, would you look at this where you walk, where you stand, where you sit? Would you talk to other people about it? We've got some prayer people who will pray with you. Where If there's some places where you need to break off some behaviors, it's good to tell somebody else and pray. It's good uh, if there's some things where you're saying, I want to clarify what I believe today. Clarify it here with us, right here at the altar. If there's some place where you say, I need to make a stand, make a stand with somebody else. It helps. And even if you're saying, I want to delight in the Lord, come and ask somebody to help you pray that. Look at all these people. They want to pray with you. Would you just come now? Come on. You want to pray about this? I want you to have joy. I'm going to come after you every Sunday. Your, your computer even is going to turn on when you don't expect it to or something. We're coming after you. We're going to be the most joyful people in New York. Would you come and pray and not let this moment go? Would you come and pray with ours? But give everybody a hug as you... As you uh, take off for home today.